Well, good morning, and we are uh, continuing our series in Romans, courtroom to living room. And uh, before I dive into Romans, again, I want to just talk to you about uh, direction of where we're headed as a church and remind you of this picture that we believe God's given us to be cloud followers. Uh, the sense of from rooted from the story in Exodus where the people of God are following the cloud and, and moving with him uh, wherever he goes, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, whether, the, where, whether it feels comfortable or uncomfortable, uncom- whether it feels easy or difficult, uh, we, we are people who follow the cloud. Um, uh, last August, Trina and I were in Egypt. We were uh, helping at a field forum where our international workers were coming from Lebanon and Iraq and uh, Jordan and Israel and Egypt. They were all coming together. And we were there. We were walking this pathway one day, and there's this, uh, this guard hut. And two guards are there, and they're looking up in the sky, and they are really uh, excited. Uh, and they're excited. It's about 110 degrees, blue skies, and they're pointing up in the sky and uh, ver- they're very excited to see a cloud. Now, uh, Trina and I, just, you know, we, we're from Oregon. Uh, we're in the, in the Sinai Peninsula. We're not all that excited to see clouds. In fact, we're very excited to see blue skies and no clouds. But these two guys are really excited, and they are convinced that because there's the cloud, it, it's going to rain. And Trina and I look up, and we look up in the sky, and there's like this little wispy, kind of white, fluffy thing. It's about the size of a quarter that you can see through. And then we're like, it's not going to rain. It's it's just not going to rain. But these two guys are convinced, and they're very excited because it's there. It's in front of them, and they just can't stop talking about it. And Trina and I kind of chuckle because we're like, hey, we're fine without clouds. Uh, and, and frankly, sometimes when we get in the routine of our spiritual lives, we can get stuck in a rut of religion and, uh, and live life without a cloud and, and be perfectly fine with it. But the reality is, is that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, and, and being in relationship with Jesus is all about following the cloud. The New Testament expression of that is walking in step with the Spirit. That walk in the infilling and the flow of the Spirit that we, we follow Him we keep in step with the Spirit, following, living lives that honor God, and doing the things, following Him wherever He leads us. And again, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, whether the timing feels right or not, or whether it's difficult or easy, we want to be people who follow. And so what we need to do is we need to have ears tuned to what the Spirit is saying. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. So just like you might recognize someone's voice that's familiar, we need to familiarize ourselves with the, the voice of the shepherd. That's part of cloud following and tuning into the life of the Spirit. So we're, that's, that'll be a big part as we move forward is, is what does it look like in practical terms to be in relationship or as the scriptures say, to be fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit so that we hear his voice and our hearts are ready to respond. That's part of what it means to be a cloud follower. And we'll talk the specifics of that in the weeks and months to come. But I just want to keep tossing that picture in front of you, that you are someone, and maybe in your own private prayer times, that you would be praying, Lord, teach me to hear your voice. If, if that's a foreign uh, experience for you, uh, that would be a great prayer. Lord, teach me to hear your voice. I want to I hear your voice. I, I want to follow the cloud. I want to follow and keep in step with the Spirit. And we, we want to do that together as a church body. 
Hey, get your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 10. That's where we're going today. We're in this new section in Romans. Uh, Romans 1 through 4 is about the doctrine of justification. Romans 5 through 8, about hope and life in the Spirit. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 are about uh, Israel's unbelief as it relates to God's faithfulness. Israel's unbelief as it relates to God's faithfulness. And there's a, a pretty difficult passages here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And uh, we, we tossed out this phrase of, of human sovereignty and divine responsibility. And last week we looked at Romans 9 and specifically focused on verse 6 of Romans 9, which poses the question, has God failed to keep his word? Did God fail to keep his word? Um, as it relates to the Jewish people, because remember, God gave a promise to Abraham, I will be your God, and I will be the God of your descendants forever. But the reality is, is when Paul is declaring the gospel, Israel, or the Jewish people, are rejecting the gospel. So the question that Paul is, 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 has to answer is, wait a minute, I thought God made this promise, did, not, did God not keep his word? And it's not a theoretical question that's like, well, interesting to find out, but doesn't relate to me. It does relate to you and I, because if God did not keep his promise to Israel, what makes you think he's going to keep his promise to you? These promise we've re promises we're, we're rejoicing in in the scriptures, and specifically in Romans chapter 8, that there, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's an important question. And Paul answers it by pointing back to Abraham and saying, not every physical descendant of Abraham is a child of the promise. And then he points to Jacob and Esau, if you are here last week, and says, look, God chose Jacob over Esau. He was younger, even before he was born, even before he could do any good or bad. God chooses to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And then that difficult example of Pharaoh, where he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that, that he might be glorified. And we learned that, that God hardens the hearts of those he wants to harden. And as we go through that, that, uh, that chapter 9, uh, we, can, we can see that he chooses to have mercy and who he's going to have mercy, and uh, we, we see him harden hearts of those uh, he wants to harden, and what we learned is that, you know what, he's sovereign. He is God. And yes, sometimes his decisions don't make sense to us, but we remind ourselves of who he is and who we are. Um, I, I've been talking a little bit about my, my experience in boarding school. One of the experiences that I had in boarding school uh, was the, this whole packing and unpacking. That was a routine of my life. Packing bags, unpacking bags. Packing bags, unpacking bags. Always moving around. Uh, we were always getting on planes and in new, uh, new places. And uh, that was just a routine of my life. And, uh, and one of the things that I noticed as a young kid, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, that when I would pack my bags... My dad, on the night before I would leave, my dad would come into the room and uh, he would poke and prod through my suitcase, making, just, making certain that I had everything that I was supposed to have in my bag. And uh, he would literally empty my whole suitcase and repack it. Now, as a kid, uh, you know, two or three years into this, I realized that, you know, it, it wasn't going to be a lot of use to spend a bunch of time packing my, dad, my, my bag because my dad was going to come back in there and repack it anyways. Um, and so uh, I, we, my brother and I just started throwing stuff in the suitcase, knowing that dad would come that night before we left, and he'd repack the whole thing, and that's certainly what happened. In fact, I, I was sharing the story last night, and my mom and dad were in the service, and my mom came up to me after the service and said, you know what, when we travel, I do the same thing, because he walks in and repacks my bag. <laughs> my dad is an awesome packer. Uh, 
But you know, when you're putting all this effort into it and then someone comes in and then just redoes it for you, it's like, what's the point? Why am I killing myself packing this bag? You know, I'm not gonna spend a bunch of time. You know, what's the point? That is the question that oftentimes we get to or we, that arises in our minds, in our hearts when we read a passage like Romans chapter nine. God's gonna have mercy on who he's gonna have mercy. God's gonna harden the hearts of those he wants to harden. So what's the point? Why go on mission? Why fight oppression? Why fight injustice? Why evangelize? He's God, I'm not. He's the boss, he's CEO. What's the point? And that, that can be a conclusion that you come to as, as you end reading Romans chapter nine. But what we're gonna discover is, again, this tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility as we read this or maybe come to this conclusion where, oh, God's gonna have mercy on who he wants to have mercy. He's gonna harden the hearts of, of who he's gonna harden. We may be tempted to say, what's the point? But really, what we're going to discover is that Romans 9 was about sovereignty. Romans 10 is all about our responsibility and the unfolding drama of God's redemptive plan. Because we have a part. And we see this right away in Romans 10. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm just going to work my way through the text like we did last week. In Romans 10, we see this right from the very beginning. Paul has made the case. God's in charge. We're not. He's the boss. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens the hearts of those he wants to harden. And then we read chapter 10, verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. And you just hit the pause button there and go, wait a minute, Paul. You have just tracked through all this difficult terrain and have said uh, very clearly God's going to do what he's going to do. Why in the world are you praying? What's going on here? And this is our part. Yes, God is sovereign. But there is the tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And Paul is getting at something. It's not what's the point. It's what's my part. Ever read a book and get a couple chapters into it or, uh, or watched a movie and get a little bit into it and then you, you just skip to the end or you read the last chapter of the book. Anyone want to confess that they've ever done that? I've done that. Okay, a couple you have. Some of you are going, I can't understand how in the world someone would do that. Well, here's why. Sometimes you're getting to the plot of the story and you're wondering, how in the world is this thing going to end? And so you go to the end of the last chapter of the book and you read it and you go, okay, that's how it's going to get there. And you're still curious of how the plot is going to develop that way. So you read the last chapter. I think it would really help us to look at the last verse of Romans chapter 10 to help us understand where Paul is going so that we can re-engage our minds to what he's going to say. Because here's what he says in Romans chapter 10, verse 21. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. So last, this is the last verse of, of Romans chapter 10. All day long, I opened my arms to them, speaking of Israel, but they were disobedient and rebellious. Here's why we go there at, at the end of that chapter is because sometimes we finish a, a chapter like Romans 9, we might have a picture of God whose arms are like this. It's the God who's the boss and the CEO who's gonna do what he wants to do. And he's picked his team and his arms are like this. And that's not the picture of God. Because Paul in Romans chapter 10 is going to say, here's the picture of God. 
His arms are open and he's stretched out his arms and he's longing for people to come to him. He's longing for Israel to recognize who he is. But all day long, they're rebellious and disobedient. The picture of God is not a God with his arms crossed who's already picked his team. It's a picture of a God whose arms are open to people saying, come home, come home. Because there is a part for you to play. And the question, I think what, the, what, what Paul is answering here is how do people go from hard-heartedness, how do people go from a place where they cannot recognize who Christ is to a place of running into, into, into God's arms? And Paul is gonna spell it out for us very clearly here in Romans chapter 10 and talk to us about two, uh, two ways that this happens. And it's, it's not surprising to us. But the point is that it's not Cynically, hey, we know what God's gonna do, he's gonna do. Well, you know, what's the point? No, it, it's, it's a, there's a part for you and I to play, and which is why Paul begins in chapter 10, verse one, by just describing this first part. It's prayer. The longing of his heart is for the people of Israel to be saved. Paul is praying for the Jewish people. He's praying for his relatives. He's praying for his neighbors. He's praying for the people he used to be with. He hasn't given up. He hasn't said, well, they, hadn't, they haven't responded to the Messiah, so God must have hardened their heart. That's not the conclusion he's come to. He's praying for them. And I think sometimes we don't understand the power or the, the privilege we have in prayer. Blaise Pascal, a 16th century French philosopher and mathematician, describes this privilege of prayer to us by putting it this way. He says, God instituted prayer in order to lend to his people the dignity of causality. Read that again. God instituted prayer in order to lend to his people the dignity of causality. Here was what Pascal is saying. He is saying, you are made in the image of God and he has given to you the dignity of being able to walk through the open doors of heaven into the throne room to stand before your father God, the high king of heaven, and present your requests. And he listens. And as you make your requests, things begin to happen. God has lended to his people the dignity of causality. It's not what's the point, it's what's my part. And the part that Paul is talking about that we play in helping people run into the open arms of God is praying. Things, causes begin to happen when you pray. And we see how Paul is praying for his Jewish, uh, his Jewish family, perhaps, and, 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 and friends in the nation. In fact, if you go back to the last verse of chapter nine, he describes Israel's state. They've been trying really hard to earn their way to heaven. And uh, in verse 33, it says, God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. But anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. There's this rock that the Jewish people are stumbling over, and it says in him, meaning the rock is a person, Whoever puts their trust in the rock, Christ, will never be disgraced. But here's, here's what's going on. The Jewish people are walking along and they're hearing about Jesus' this rock, they're stumbling over it, or they're just kicking it to the side so they can keep the path clean and their pathway is the law. And they're just, they're following after God. But they stumbled over the fact that Christ is the Messiah. 
And this has been a major stumbling block because by and large, the Jewish people are rejecting the gospel. Gentiles are receiving the gospel. And then Paul continues in verse two of chapter 10 and says, I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Let me give you a picture to help you understand what Paul's saying here in these, these, these verses I've just read. Um, this summer is the, the Olympics in London. All right, and many of us have watched the Olympics. You probably have your favorite event in the Olympics. Uh, a lot of people clue into the, the 100 meters. Uh, the 100 meters is this, this race that's run by men and women, and you know, you'll be, if you win that race, you will be dubbed the fastest man in the world or the fastest woman in the world. And so there's all these heats that are run, and finally you get down to this final race that's going to happen, and the runners are in the starting blocks, and they are here, and let's imagine the finish line is over there. And as they're in the starting blocks, here's, here's the deal. That finish line is the goal, meaning when the gun goes off, these runners are not going to run in random directions, right? Right? They're not going to run left. They're not going to run right. Someone's not going to turn around and run that way. They are going that way. That finish line is the goal. Gun goes off. The runners are racing. They're going to get to the finish line as quick as they can. First one there wins, and they cross the finish line, and they stop running. But what if one of those runners or two of those runners or maybe a lot of those runners went past the finish line and kept sprinting? I mean, they sprinted around and did 400 meters, and then they went another 400 meters, and they kept running. What would happen? They'd be on the news, right? Because they'd be like, come on, people, it's 100 meters. Do the math. One stretch. You've run heats here. You know what's going on. It would, it would be a little bit ridiculous. The reason I paint that picture for you, because that is exactly what the Jewish people are doing, what Israel has done. They were running the right race. They were given the law. The track was the law. They were running along, and, and what they didn't recognize was that the finish line, the goal was Christ. And what they didn't realize was that the end of the race was Christ. He is the fulfillment of the law. What they did is they crossed the finish line, kicked the stone off the track, and kept running, and kept running, and kept running, and they are doing it enthusiastically. It's not that they, they aren't full of zeal. In fact, they have all kinds of zeal, but, but Paul says it's misdirected, zeal without knowledge. And they're running laps on this track, thinking that the more they run, that they will be made right with God. And let me just stop here and say to us, maybe you are here today, and you are thinking that the harder you work and the more laps that you run, that the more you will please God. And what you need to know, that that is misdirected zeal. That that race was never intended for you to run and earn your way into heaven or somehow grasp salvation for yourself. Because the goal and the end of the race is Christ. Our faith in Christ takes us from the courtroom to the living room. And now, a new race, a race of faith has begun. But what Paul is saying is saying the Jewish people, they have not recognized this. 
And so I imagine him praying, Father, help them to see that Christ is the rock, not a stumbling stone. Help them not to, to kick your son off the track. Help them understand that it's not by their effort to run laps that will make them right with God. I imagine Paul praying this. And as he does, eyes will be open, hearts will be made soft, and there's that picture of God with his arms outstretched like this. And people will run into those arms because someone prayed. In fact, what Paul will continue to say here is he'll say, as I keep reading, that you're so close. I mean, you're so close to being made right with God. Verse uh, five, for Moses writes that the laws of making a person right with God require obedience to all its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth. And don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says the message is very close at hand. It's on your lips and it's in your heart. You are so close. It isn't about running laps. It's about recognizing the Messiah, recognizing Jesus, and by putting your faith in him, you will go from the courtroom to the living room. And so prayer, praying for people, is a way that eyes are opened and hearts are made soft so that people can run into his, to the Father's arms. The second way is, again, very plain. It says right here that it's preaching, it's proclaiming, it's telling people the good news of the gospel. Let me just keep reading here. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My translation there is you can stop running. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. We pray people into the open arms of God and we tell people the good news of the gospel and that causes them to run into the arms of God. Paul lays out this progression real clearly. How can people call on God if they don't believe first? And how can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear unless you and I tell them and how can you and I tell them unless we're sent or we go? And when we go and we speak and they hear and they believe and then they call on one who can save them, here's what happens. See, we've got all these canvases on the wall here as we've been journeying through Rome and these words sort of carry the narrative of the story that we've been studying together. And here people are in the courtroom and there's wrath of God and foolish ideas and judgment and no excuse and sinfulness and condemnation. And one day, someone who is likely praying for you opened their mouth and expressed the gospel story to you and you heard it and you believed it and you called out to God and in that moment, you were saved. You stopped having to run laps to try and earn your way. 
and you were taken from the courtroom, and no longer do you have to relate to God as judge, and now you get to live life in the living room, and God is your dad. He's your daddy God, and you are adopted as a son and a daughter of the Most High God. And instead of condemnation, now it's no condemnation. Instead of wrath being revealed, now righteousness is yours. It's been credited to your account. And now you've got all these wonderful things. I mean, we've got beautiful feet, and we've got a chosen and called and adopted and uh, victory and all these wonderful things simply because someone told you. And what Paul is saying is that there are people whose hearts are still hard, whose eyes are still blinded. And it would be a huge mistake for us to say, what's the point? He's the boss. He's the CEO. God's going to do what he's going to do. And our picture of God in our minds is this. No, 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 no. It's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's not what's the point. It's what's my part. And my part is to pray. And my part is to proclaim and tell people about Christ so they can go from the courtroom to the living room. Does everyone believe when we, when we do this? No. Which, therein lies the tension, right? That's why it's, it's difficult sometimes to, to share the gospel because we don't want to be rejected. But it isn't about you or me. It's about Christ. In fact, Paul continues and says the people of Israel continue to reject. He says, not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah, the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing. And that is hearing the good news about Christ. But I ask the people of Israel... I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Paul's going to ask two questions here. Did Israel hear the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. But I ask, did the people of Israel really understand? Well, maybe they heard, but did they get it? Do they understand? Yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, go back thousands of years, God said to his people, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. And later Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. We have a part to play. It's not what's the point. It's what, what's my part and when we pray, things happen. And when we speak, yes, some people will reject Christ. But some people will have eyes that see for the very first time. And a heart that believes for the very first time. And they will come alive in Christ. And enjoy this new life of relating to God as Father. I just want to wrap up our time with... Uh, uh, with, with, again, some comments from, uh, from the text for us for just personal um, you know, pondering or meditation. And last week, uh, my words were this to you, that, that we need to humble our intellect before God. We need to humble our intellect before God. Um, he's God, we're not. You know, you know the difference between you and God or me and God? Is that he doesn't want to be me. Right? And oftentimes we want to be him. But there's such a vast disparity between him and us. 
And his idea of justice and fairness is so much more fully developed than ours, don't you think? So we humble our intellect, which means that we allow each other to disagree about some of these difficult subjects. We live with this, uh, this spirit of humility and meekness. So we humble our intellect. And secondly, we last week talked about being stunned by his mercy. Do you realize that you are a Christ follower not because you worked really hard to understand who Jesus is? You are a Christ follower today because God had mercy on you. Gospel of John says he chose you. You did not choose him. You are, be stunned by mercy if you are in relationship with Christ. He's had mercy on you, which should then lead to prompts of, of worship. I mean, praise God. And this week from this uh, text in Romans chapter 10, let me just ask you a few questions. And the first one's this. Have you become cynical in your faith with God, in your relationship with God? Is your relationship with God often described by phrases like, whatever, God, you're going to do what you're going to do? I think what God would rather hear from you is, God, I don't understand it all, but I trust you. I trust you. Cynicism, when you boil it down, really the root of it is anger. Somewhere along the way, God disappointed you, and you're angry. Or somewhere along the way, maybe something happened, and you're, you're angry. And it's, it's, it's good to process that. But hopefully process to the point where you could say, Lord, I trust you. I, I don't understand all this, but I trust you. My second question for you this week is, who are you praying for? Who, who are you longing to see be in relationship with Christ. I mean, your prayers cause things to happen, cause hearts to become soft, eyes to be opened. Which is, by the way, which is why we pray for our missionaries. Which is why we, we have Barnabas groups who's, who are praying for missionaries. Which is why we have an upper room across the street so that people can go and they can pray and, and marvelous things happen in the spirit which is why you pray in the morning or in the evening, which is why we pray in our Bible study groups, because when we pray, causes, are, I mean, we give birth to these causes. Things happen. Who are you praying for? Who are you longing that they'll be in relationship with the Father? And lastly, who are you telling the gospel story to? One of the questions I'm asking myself is, Steve, when's, when's the last time you have articulated the gospel to somebody? And, and church doesn't count because it's almost a freebie for me, right? I can stand up and like do it every weekend. No, no, who, who am I building intentional relationship with and being a friend to in my neighborhood? Who, who, who am I talking to about Jesus? Not to induce guilt, but to motivate me to seize an opportunity. Who are you talking to about Jesus? See, when you pray and when you speak, eyes are opened, hearts become soft because you're playing your part. And this is the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility.